لكل شيء إذا ما تم نقصان فلا يغر بطيب العيش إنسان هي الأمور بسم الله اللهم صل وسلم على نبينا محمد السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته and welcome to the caravan sarai my name is Bilal and I am one third of your hosting trio joined by brothers Umar and Sadman and joining us today is brother Leon and in this session we will be talking about uh, Muslims in the American prison system. And some of the questions we are hoping to tackle today, but are not limited to, are uh, what is life like for Muslims in the American prison system and how Muslims can can help this um, American Muslim prison population. And uh, without further ado, I'll pass things over to Brother Sadman for a brief introduction of our guest. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Bismillah, alhamdulillah, wa salatu wa salam ala rasulillah. Jazakumullah khair, Brother Leon, for joining us again. Uh, we actually had a previous recording, but uh, you know, due to circumstances, we lost it. But alhamdulillah, Allah has blessed us with Brother Leon again. And inshallah, I will start with the bio. So Brother Leon, his full name is Leon Al-Alameen, is the founder and executive director of Made Institute, a non-profit organization he started in January 2015. That year, he also became the city of Flint's first ward zoning board of appeals officer. He is a graduate of Flint's Strive in Mott, Workforce Green Construction. Leon currently works as a Genesee Health System Adult and Youth Mental Health First <clears throat> Aid Recovery Coach. Uh, this program was essentially created to, to serve as an alternative to, to inca incarceration for jail or prison bound and returning individuals. Leon is also the president of an LLC called Abdullah Building Performance Block, a property management company started to help create jobs for returning citizens and risk youth who have been systematically uh, structured out of society. So Jazakumullah Khair again, Sheikh Leon. I'll pass over to Brother Omar to start the questions. Uh, thank you, Sheikh Sadman. Um, Brother Leon, thanks for joining us again. SubhanAllah. Um, like, like Sadman mentions, you're doing some amazing work on like a very uh, myriad of um, uh, a myriad of instances. Um, but if we look at your earlier life, it was heading towards a totally different direction. Would you be able to just quickly talk us into how your life started and how you got to where you are now? Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh, my dear respected brothers. I'd like to thank you for um, inviting me um, to come back to the show and uh, hopefully, inshallah, we get it right this time. <laughs> <laughs> definitely, definitely, yes. Um, I'm a lifelong resident of the city of Flint, Michigan, born and raised my whole life. Um, I'm mostly on Flint's north side, one of the most uh, drug and violent ridden areas of the community, mostly in a single parent household in my adolescent years with my grandmother, Miss Maddie Wilson. And then as I got older, uh, more involved and more in my, with my mother as well, Miss Lily Wilson. Um, growing up, uh, was raised in the, the Baptist church. And then from, you know, drifting off from that kind of lost what I, uh, you know, um, found my way kind of wandering around without that parent, that, that father figure in my life to ultimately um, being involved in, in, in finding religion in the street, so to say. You know, I um, began to adapt to my urban environment here in Flint. And um, it wasn't um, a situation to where I always made the best of choices. Um, growing up in urban Flint, I seen the good, the bad, the ugly, you know, um, I can recall um, seeing one of my, my best friends being shot over $10 in a dice game. Another good friend of mine getting his, his head blown off on Halloween for trading jokes. Um, I used to be in, um, and, I, and I'm just speaking on this to kind of paint a picture to let you know what kind of environment I grew up in. And um, some of my best friends who lived across the street from me over on my street at that time, you know, used to hustle with me. Um, when I started dabbling and dabbling in the streets, um, you know, um, to being beat up by police and things like that. So that was kind of like the environment that I was being raised up in at an early age. Um, for the most part, you know, I had the guidance of my grandmother. I, I made a commitment. I graduated high school, Flint Northwestern in 1999. But after my graduation, I just became addicted to what I seen outside the doors of her home and in my environment. And some of those things I just mentioned, you know, um, you know, Flint real, man, it's, 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 it's a surreal place. 
we done had some um some great things innovated here, some great athletes and individuals come out of here, but we also done um, witnessed and experienced some some tragedies as well. As currently as the Flint water crisis, to uh, mass incarceration, high levels of poverty, uh, corrupt politics, etc. So that's uh, very uh, like that start is very hard, but. How did you convert to Islam then? Were you introduced to it throughout your life or uh, what was your first initial, um, you know, meeting with Islam? So Islam, I really didn't know too much about Islam in my my former life. Um, my name used to be, um, my old government name was Leon Dwayne Wilson at that time. Like I said, I grew up in a Baptist church uh, foundation and family. And then I left the church and became a street hustler. But in my midst of hustling um, in the streets, I uh, to me uh, was set up by so-called what I call running friends and was um, sentenced to prison. And uh, I was charged to a 12 to 20 year prison sentence for drugs and gun possession. And it was actually in my incarceration is where I, I was introduced to Islam. Um, as I entered the uh, prison gates in 2003, it was like a new journey, a new world for me. And um, in that journey, I seen a whole new reality. And I would say after about a year of being incarcerated and adjusting to my new environment, I was introduced um, through Islam, through a former inmate as well, who was, um, one was from Yemen, a brother by the name of Mubaris Ahmed, who was a lifer, and another good brother by the name of Dwayne Roper, whom we call uh, Brother Hodge, who was from Lansing. And um, I was just on a people, you know, I just kind of observed. I wasn't trying to make friends or anything. I was just learning people in my environment. And I was reading everything I can get my hands on, especially religious books. And I just uh, noticed this individual, these two individuals I mentioned at certain times. And I was in a, a higher max prison facility for my first four years. That's 22 hours lockdown. So you only had two hours outside every day. And so you make the best out of that time when you was able to get out. So I was real observant and I used to either read or work out. And uh, I used to notice these brothers at certain times would kind of leave the yard or if we was inside the compound, they would go to their, their, their uh, space rooms or don't rooms and, and um, be gone for certain amounts of time. And one day I asked one of the brothers, Ahmed, what was he doing? And he was telling me he was praying. And we began to have this discussion and he, he, he began to tell me that he was Muslim and um, his, his deen is Islam or his way is life or his religion is it's Islam. And I began to just ask questions and he would give me Dawah pamphlets, booklets and things like that to read, never forcing anything on me. And I just would read these books and it was so many questions I had about myself that I was trying to figure out, especially coming from the streets and living like an animal out here and lost and trying to um, find my way. I was searching for something. And um, so as I, and I needed answers to many things like the meaning of life and where do we go from here? And is there something greater than us? And things like that. And when I began to read these pamphlets and books, it began to answer these questions for me. And so as I acquired more about knowledge and would be around these two gentlemen who ultimately become mentors, I just deserved their practice, behavior, and ultimately I was invited to Juma, began to attend Juma several times. And in the midst of Juma, you know, I eventually took my Shahada and declared that there is no God but Allah. And Prophet Muhammad ibn Abdullah is his final messenger and prophet. Peace be upon him, his family, and his lineage. And from there, my life completely began to take a new journey, a new step in the right direction. Was there anything in particular, Brother Leon, that uh, stood out for you in Islam? that as compared to other religions? Um, the discipline of it. You know, I really liked structure. I knew I was I was loose out there and I knew my life needed structure, but not in a way of oppression or, or in a way like that. The type of discipline structure that Islam gives you is the way of uh, peace and freedom, peace within yourself and peace within your environment and your surroundings. And well, for me, it was the, the five time slots a day, the uh, the charity giving giving of zakat, the Ramadan fast when each year, um, 
you know, these type of things and, and declaring that there is no God but one God. You know, I knew in my heart of hearts, I never really believed in the Trinity in my upbringing. There were so many questions that I had about about that. It just didn't make sense to me. And so um, when I became and, and, and was aware of that there's monotheism, that there's one the oneness of God in his creation and these type of things, you know, it really, really touched my heart and my mind to study and want to want to acquire this knowledge. And then once I began to understand this knowledge, to apply it to see if it can be effective in transforming my life. And that's exactly what Al Islam has done for me. It has begun to transform my life. Subhanallah. That's uh, that's very uh, interesting, uh, Brother Leon. Thank you uh, for those insights. But if I could kind of take the conversation uh, in a different direction here for a moment, if you could kind of broadly explain to us what the Muslim prison population is like uh, demographically, like ethnically, for example, is it easy to study and practice Islam in the prison system or do the guards kind of give you a hard time? Yeah, sure. So like when I went in in 2003, you know, as far as having service, you was allowed that. And that had been from after years of many um, Muslim brothers and sisters fighting to even get that right to worship and practice their religion behind the walls. People have lost their lives and things like that, fighting for Islam to be behind the prison walls. And um, so that aspect was there. But far as like gathering on the yard or the, the study and two larger groups and things like that, you know, it was kind of hard. You know, they and, and, and when and, and the COs and things like that begin to notice certain individuals were taking things serious and have such a discipline. It's kind of like you got a light on you and they will kind of target you and disrupt you if they feel that you can be a threat to their social order within those walls. And a lot of that takes place. They separate brothers and sisters and, you know, um, keep you from being able to congregate and study. Um, it's a lot of times Ramadan wasn't being able to be practiced properly um, um, and intentionally at times uh, giving giving bowl uh, food and things like that, not proper meals and nutritions to be able to, um, you know, really practice doing Ramadan. Uh, the lack of being able to get spiritual material, <laughs> Islamic material, you know, into the facility for brothers and sisters to have to, um, to study and learn. You know, all these things takes place and all these things are real. And it's always been an ongoing struggle to change those norms within the, those, those facilities and those walls. Um, to the current date, a lot of progress has been achieved, but there's still a lot of ways to go. Um, still a lot of resistance, misinformation about what Islam is. Um, and it's mostly was dominated by African-American or foundational black people who converted like myself to Al-Islam after being introduced to it. Again, for me, it was those brothers, lifers, mentors, and the book of Malcolm X, Elhad Malik Shabazz was like one of the first books that I read when I was in there. And that really changed my focus in my life and really made me hungry for Islam, along with those mentors of mine at that time and and so forth. But as I began to um, go through the prison journey and, and, and getting closer to being released, I did notice more, um, a lot more immigrant Muslims um, brothers were beginning to come between the walls. Um, seen a lot more brothers um, being from being targeted out here in the world to ending up in prison. Um, one of those brothers was actually my mentor, um, Mubarak Ahmed. He's from, the, like I said, the Detroit area. He was framed by a Detroit policeman of a murder that he never committed and, and lost 18 years of his life. And what's crazy about that story is I always told him, you know, that if I ever was given a chance to get back out here and get my life in order, I will always be an advocate for your freedom. And once we created May, we had an opportunity. Prior to that, I was always seeing them and supporting them. But especially when we formed the organization and a couple of years ago now, um, he was released. He had his sentence overturned and um, he's home now. Um, he's doing well, beginning his family, you know. So that just goes to show the power of Islam, faith in, in the one God and, and how this thing is like a transformative Thing. It can really transform lives and, and, and 
communities and, and countries, man, if it's really practiced, bro, I think Islam is a beautiful thing. It, it's just a powerful force and a discipline that, you know, all I can say is all praise be to Allah. Alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah. Wow, so that's crazy. So the brother, he got, he's out now. He's he's living in freedom. Alhamdulillah, yes, sir. He, um, alhamdulillah. And he recently was able to sue the state and be compensated for the time he spent behind the walls in which he lost his mother and close his brother during that time. And they began to compensate him with financial means for, you know, robbing him of the years of his life. So while you were in prison, how was like, can you give us a breakdown of your daily life, especially when you started to practice Islam? Because uh, I think in the first four years, in, you were in max prison, right? 22 hours? Yes. Uh, right. And then after, you, how was it like? Like you would wake up, uh, cafeteria time and these kind of things. How, can you kind of break that down for us? Yeah, absolutely. You, you, you're right on point. Um, that's basically the routine. So you get to have three meals a day. They break your, they break your, your, your room, your dorm or whatever, your cell block let you out for those meals. And when the first four years of my life <clears throat> incarcerated, like I say, it was high level max <clears throat> type security. So you only got two hours. So you get those child times and then you had two hours outside to either, you know, go in the yard, work out or go to the library or something and read. For me, I spent most of my time reading and trying to educate myself as much as possible, you know, but um, you constantly under pressure, whether from the, the, the fellow inmates in there with you, or from the prison guards, it, it just depends. You know, um, it's always something happening. You always gotta be on guard at all times. You gotta be aware of your surroundings. You never know what's happening at any given time. So you definitely, it, it definitely made me have to man up real quick and be real observant. And what was crazy for me going through that process, I had just previously been shot in my head and left to die prior to my being sentenced and being incarcerated. So I actually had to begin to heal. And so I was had a handicap in itself. And that's really not a place where you want to be handicapped. But it was a lot guiding me on this path to show me to cleanse me up and get me prepared for a better mission. And I survived it. And by the grace of Allah, man, through that 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 high level intense of um environment, I was able to 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 come out, be given a second chance. And inshallah, you know, all praise be to Allah. Alhamdulillah, subhanAllah. I just, I just want to add one thing. I remember last time when we spoke, you were speaking about uh, how on the first day when you came in, someone had hung themselves. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but this this uh, environment isn't something where anybody wants to be, right? Absolutely. That's absolutely correct. You know, so when you leave the county jail, when I left the county jail here in Flint, Michigan, and they was getting ready to ship me off to where I was going, which was Jackson, correctional um, facility, which is the oldest prison in Michigan. It was around since like the 1800s. And it's like those movies where you see the steel bars and the doors slam hard. Jackson is still designed like that. Now, other facilities that you go to, they're kind of more modernized, like college dorms a little bit. But Jackson is just like that. And um, the first day, I'm coming through seven block. And a guy hung himself off the tower and they had to have an emergency lockdown. So I knew when I came through there and seen that I was in a real place. No more funny games. And you got to be on your P's and Q's at all times. So and uh, could you give us like a like a brief description of what the dynamic is like between the, the Muslim prison population and the non-Muslim prison population? Because it's kind of well known that there's a lot of gangs in prison and you mentioned you kind of have to be on guard at all times. Are you on guard from these other, you know, potential threats like gangs in prison? Well, it's a combination of, in, in that environment, it's a combination of order. You're really in a melting pot, right? So you have gang members who rep their gangs. You have religious organizations forming like cliques. And that's from Islam to Christianity, you know, and then you have, um, you have some of those individuals those Aryan nation type of individuals, that white supremacy type groups. So it just depends where you at in that environment. Some places is structured and, and certain things and, and groups may dominate a little more than others. But you on guard not only from those groups, 
a lot of times it's, it's kind of, one thing in prison is kind of like a mutual respect. A lot of times it's more structured and organized. That's one thing I can say about it. And, and, and individuals have that respect because you in there with people, you know, who have nothing to lose just like you. So you don't really have time to fake it and shake it because at any given moment, you thinking you playing tough or you out slicking somebody, you'll find out winding up getting your, your, your head cracked, you know, or something done to you. So you really have to have to move it a certain way. And so, you know, you're looking out for that type of activities, but then you have crooked CEOs in there, officers who is a part of the problem, you know, who come in with, who are racist, who just hate individuals who are incarcerated for whatever reasons, you know, some have personal confrontations and things like that. And some just were racist and that's how they got off. That's how they got that negative energy off was being in authority over, you know, people in that situation. So they would make it hard for you. You know, they would do certain things. They would, they would try to get other inmates to do things to you. So it just really depends on as you as an individual, how you carry yourself and most definitely, um, just, you know, just just using all your senses to be wise and be smart about what you say, where you at at certain times and how you move and who you speaking to. So, Brother Leon, I had a question about um, the cliques and gangs you're talking about. Um, when it comes to like usually gangs, they form around either usually it's race. Right. But when it comes to the Muslims, are, are they is it mixed or is it just one race uh, that are the Muslims or is it, you know, because usually it's the. Aryan race and then, you know, other the Mexican race and things like this. So how are the Muslims in terms of uh, uh, like a brotherhood or, you know, something like that? They kind of got their tribism. I mean, you got Nation of Islam in there. You got those from more of the Sunnah perspective of Islam. You got from the Shia perspective. You got the um, gods and earth, 5% nation. So it just depends. Um, now, like in Michigan, like 5%ers are not that large. In the prison system, you get a few here and there. You have more nation of Islam and you have more Sunni and Shia Muslims in there. And you will get your attention. But it was all uh, you also had the more science temple of America, individuals from um, Noble Jew Ali's movement. That's that's in there. So you had these different fashions and aspects of Islam in there. And for the most part, it was a mutual respect. And we try and individuals in those situations try to move as much as they can in accordance to some type of structure. But then you did have situations to where individuals drifted off and there would be times where, you know, you have to have, uh, you have to have um, sit downs and, and sometimes those sit downs and trying to have that conflict resolution didn't work. You know, you have situations that erupted, but for the most part, where, where a lot of people were it's like, a lot of your lifers, especially, they knew how to jail. They've been in that situation, and it was more unity than it was chaos. Um, how how are the how's your experience, brother Leon, with the Muslim chaplains in the prison? Like, were they much helpful at all? Well, there was few. I, I think I only had literally one during my seven years of serving on that twelve to twenty year uh, prison sentence. One Muslim chaplain in Jackson, and he was he was alhamdulillah, he was good. But as I went to other facilities. You know, I had Christian chaplains and it was issues there. Some will be respectful of your faith and they will allow material in and allow you to congregate and have your service. But many will be on do little certain things to disrupt it. Won't give you your books. Um, cut time, cut your time short for studying, things like that. They will do little things to disrupt your, your progress. And um, do any other groups from the community come into the prison system? Are they allowed to come in and give dawah or is it just through the chaplains? Well, for a long time, it was mostly from the Christian faith. And um, but again, you know, brothers been fighting to get the dean propagated in there. And it were um, and I was privileged to be a beneficiary of that struggle. You know, we would get Muslim chaplain um, brothers and sisters or brothers mostly will come in and um, give dawah and teach uh, talim and things like that. Um, Coming out of the prison system, Brother Leon, how difficult is it for African-American Muslims or African-Americans in general to be rehabilitated, for lack of a better word, 
after exiting the prison system because we've heard a lot of stuff about prison system is geared for uh, people to reoffend and come back in and it's run by businesses and things like that. How's your experience been in regard to that? It's definitely a struggle. You know, um, you come, once you've been released, you come home with the shoes and the clothes on your back and a bus pass. And if you don't have any family or support, you're pretty much on your own. And that was my, my experience coming out. The one thing I did have was one of my greatest um, um, supporters, my, my, my heart, which is my mother. And she she gave me something that, that that's necessary. She gave me a safe place to rest my head, to regroup. But for many people, you come home to nothing. And many people have burnt bridges with their family members. So they can't even come home to family members. So they end up having to go to these shelters and end up homeless real quick. You know, um, you don't get proper health treatment while you're incarcerated. Um, and then you're traumatized by a lot of what you see and have to experience and go through in there. So then you come to a society that you haven't been for X amount of years and you got it, you're forced to adapt real quick. And that's traumatic in itself. So it's like, especially for the for the African American foundational black, it's just like the time after the Civil War and, and Reconstruction took place in America. It's just like that for every African American that's being released back into his community, especially for uh, at least a time five years or better, where things are always constantly changing, especially now with technology. You know, but you imagine when a guy done did 15, 20, 25 years, and here they come back into society and, you know, nothing's has remained the same when they left it. You know, that's, that's traumatic. That's shocking. I actually dealing with a situation like that now, um, you know, before we, we, the, the, we created made Institute, there was nothing like that. There's no reentry programs like that here for us that provided shelter, that provided housing and things like that. Critical things for you to be able to adapt. You know, so prior to the Maid Institute being created, there was almost zero to none, like here in Flint and in many urban areas. And that's by design because the, the end game, it, when prison, these prisons are ran by corporations and big businesses for the most part, you know, the game is to keep us enslaved into it, you know, um, keep creating environments for recidivism to be um, perpetrated so we can continue to fill the, 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 the beds. 35,000 ahead each year. That's big business. You know what I mean? So it's always been designed that way until a group of people enjoying what is right and forbidding what is wrong come together and begin to challenge that. And that is exactly what we have been doing with the Made Institute. Tail code off. Uh, Omer's question. Uh, what are the retention rates, I guess, for the lack of a better term, for, for Muslims coming out of prison? So you have a Muslim who converts in prison, then he comes out. Does he immediately leave Islam or does he uh, kind of stay in the faith? It depends. Um, in the beginning, you're full of that ding and you just come from a structured environment. You can focus. But the minute you release, if you're not coming back into a Muslim family, it's hard for the revert, the convert or the convert to Islam. Because most most of us from the, the African-American community grew up in the church of some facet of Christianity. So that's a shocker. And, and when you come back to a family who knows nothing about Islam, that's more added pressure for you to try to adapt and explain your new way of life, your new way of thinking. It's foreign to everyone. So if that brother or sister doesn't have a strong foundation and support, chances of them deviating from their their deen and maybe even even committing uh, a crime that may not be, or making a bad choice that can put them in trouble is very high. Um, chances, you know, of them re-offending uh, re is very high. It's, it's, it's almost like a 90% chance if you don't have those things in place, almost to 100%. I, I can almost go and say 100% if you don't have those things in place, a, a strong faith community, a family structure, support, housing, clothing, those type of things. So for that convert Muslim, it's very high. And a lot of times I haven't even seen it. A lot of people end up falling off their dean because all they can do is they in survival mode. And 
that's that's a, a problem with our Islamic community that I always um, that I'm currently through Made Institute we advocate and, and address and try to have a dialogue and conversation on building a better support for our, our especially our Muslim brothers and sisters coming out. You know, having something for them to come home to that's that's Islamically driven and but provides those social services and other uh, humanitarian things that that one he or she needs if they're going to even come back to that urban community or wherever they may be. These are things that are critical for your rehabilitation to, to be effective and for you to stand and hold firm to your iman and your deen. Khair, uh, Brother Leon, um, are you able to go into more detail on some of the programs you, you give to provide that support structure to Muslims coming out of prison? Sure. Or to, or to uh, anyone in general coming out of prison? Absolutely. So definitely um, at MADE Institute, and MADE also is an acronym that stands for Money, Attitude, Direction, and Education. We are a 501c3 nonprofit. And our mission is to provide comprehensive programming in the areas of transitional housing, workforce development, mentor, life skill, uh, trauma-informed um, mentoring, health and wellness, urban farming, uh, job readiness, um, job placement, um, social justice, and, and advocacy. And we utilize this holistic approach because we recognize we can't piecemeal brothers and sisters coming out of the system with um, just a job or just some training on how to get a job or housing with nothing else, no health care, no, no EBT, no, until they get on their feet. You know, all these things are critical and must be given and resources needed to really begin to uh, heal and help individuals be successful. And these, that's why we took this holistic approach because at the end of the day, our biggest vision from it is to see a community that returning citizens, average youth, and even veterans and marginalized folks have equal access and, and to resources and opportunities to be uh, involved in the political, economical, educational, and cultural life of the community. And not continuously, if you're, you're African-American, they already consider you three-fifths of a human being in the constitution and once you have a felon on your record then you completely become enslaved to the to the interpretation of that piece of legislation in the constitution your rights and freedoms are, are completely taken away on a whole nother level not to mention you were all we are already looked upon and frowned upon and dehumanized as three-fifths of a human being so i always tell people i have three strikes on my back because one i'm of black or African descent. My religion is Islam, not the dominant religion or way of life in this country. And then I'm also a formerly incarcerated man. So imagine just being as an individual, the pressure and the weight on my shoulders that I carry around and individuals who have similar stories carry around every day on top of the constant threat of just the color of our skin and, and how this thing they we we know as white supremacy and ignorance and racism and bigotry and 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 you know whatever negative name that oppresses the African American men and women and other marginalized individuals. Brother Leon, Subhanallah, may Allah make it easy for all of us. You know when we look at your life and then compare it to ours, Subhanallah has made it really difficult. But I feel like you're you're such a strong person, and may Allah keep you in the strength uh, i had a question about uh i think last time when you were on you were talking about obviously how me institute is for the community itself but you were talking about a story where uh, i think you were at a masjid and um uh they were raising money and then they gave you an opportunity to speak i don't know if you remember that story if you could expound on that story because that was a beautiful point about how we should focus more on our own community even though it is a good thing to focus on the outside muslim community Absolutely, alhamdulillah. Um, so yeah, once I got back into the community, I was, you know, I'm attending Juma prayer, all those things. That's my, you know, because in prison, it's easy to practice dean. You're already in the structured environment. So it was kind of difficult, but for me, I had that dean on me, so I'm on it. And it was a particular event given by our immigrant Muslim brothers and sisters here in Flint called Healing Flint. 
and I attended. And it, it was a, an awesome event. You know what the talk was about. And towards the end, they got ready to have the fundraiser. And when the fundraiser took place, you know, they, they pretty much raised almost like a million dollars. And I was like, wow, that's amazing within an hour. And I began to acquire about what would the funds be used for. And they had informed me that the money was going overseas to Syria to help the brothers and sisters there, which is alhamdulillah. But at that moment in time, I began to question and challenge these brothers and sisters as why haven't there been fundraisers for the Muslim brothers and sisters struggling every day right here in your own backyard in this country, though you may have a homeland across from here, you make your money off the same brothers and sisters who are in the struggle and who have been here prior to you. Why hasn't there been a real outreach and an opportunity um, or attempts at opportunities to provide opportunities for these brothers and sisters to help them get out of their current hell that they're going through? And that dialogue in itself caused a, raised a lot of eyebrows. And I was blessed to have a brother who was there who wasn't afraid for, of the tough conversation by the name of Dr. Jawad Shaw, who's our Muslim brother, who's a well-known neurosurgeant, um, businessman throughout the country. And I didn't know that at the time, but, you know, I'm, I'm fearless when it comes to my truth and I know what's affecting me. And from there, we had I had an opportunity to begin to build a relationship with this gentleman and we were talking conversate about Islam and I began to build a report and, and told him about my personal life. And from that, you know, he took the initiative to do what the other Muslims wasn't or had didn't have the courage to do at the time. And I was support a brother who was of African descent, a convert, not born into Islam. And um giving me an opportunity with employment and just the opportunity to create and, and express my idea, which was ultimately would be the May. I didn't know at the time, but, you know, and, and, and from that relationship, we built a good report and began to um, enlighten more Muslim brothers and sisters to the struggles of the everyday Muslim convert here in this country. And in particular, the black or African descent individuals. Yes, Panelite. It's really sort of indicative of, I think, in the Muslim Ummah as a whole, that the racism that's sort of still entrenched within Islam as well, which is very sad and obviously totally against the principles of Islam. Um, but what was at that point at, at that event that sort of started or kicked off your work in sort of social work? Inshallah, um, to a degree, I would say to a degree. I had already become a, a, a community activist. So when I got released, I went right back into my old neighborhood and I was disgusted that it was like a third world country that had been through a war. And it was very um, blighted homes, a lot of violence, uh, a lot of chaos, um, you name it. It was right here in my in our hometown here in Flint, in my old backyard. and. Um, I was got involved like going to block club meetings, going to school board meetings, going to city council meetings, uh, showing up uh, places in the community where conversation and talk was taking place because I wanted to know what was going on and what happened and how did we let it get so bad in such a short, seemed like a short period of time. And from that community activism, then that led me to my Muslim brothers and sisters here at that event. It was already in me, but it was enhanced even more when the brother opened his arms and his resources to allow me and others, a few others, to step into that realm and, and, and practice our deen without having to compromise it in survival mode as we began to build out what would be known today as the Maid Institute. Uh, yeah, so um, what, like, how do you think the Muslims who end up in jail, like, are there are they leaving the the jail system as muslims as well i mean because people become reversed inside the in the prison system but do muslims who end up getting incarcerated leave a better muslim or how, have you seen any situation like this um for the most part i would say majority more than negative 
leave a, a, a better Muslim? Because I think sometimes you can be born into something you take it for granted. You can be privileged to many things and never have to struggle or go through struggle to understand the, the responsibility of when you do achieve greatness within yourself or something in life that you can't really appreciate it. So some for some, it may have just been the right course of action that they needed or course of life they had to take to appreciate their dean again. So I didn't see a lot of individuals appreciate their dean again and really fine tune the dean within themselves and come back out and be stronger Muslims. But I've also seen some who were born into the faith and have families in it who will go in and for survival purposes will practice dean. But the minute they're released, they're back into a culture that's opposite of their their, their Islam and they, they write into it. SubhanAllah, that's very true because even as most normal Muslims, we only remember Allah when we need him and we don't, uh, you know, when times are good, we tend to forget. So SubhanAllah, that's a really good reminder for us all. Um, you think, Brother Leon, that the the reasons that some of the reasons that um, African-Americans, Muslims end up in jail, is, is this something that we can really see changed in the future like are you seeing a big change to your efforts at made do you, do you think in the future we can sort of turn this around or is this something that really that's deeply entrenched like you said in the american constitution and the american way of life i think we're becoming more the generation of the day is becoming more more conscious of the ills of the i'm gonna say the old american way of us or society upon um, its citizens. And what I mean by that, you've seen it the several last 10 years with the police brutality, the um, the protests against that, the violence against African-Americans, things like that has allowed other ethnic groups and other faiths to become aware of what's really going on. For those who may have, have the privilege of being in suburban areas or just isolated, from what they only may have seen on TV or heard about, I think they got a real, real um, opportunity to see the effects of racism in this country and what's really been taking place. And some of the perceptions and thoughts that they may have gotten from their parents or others about why certain individuals are in the situation and condition that they in begins to be questioned, you know, from either uh, the just being ignorant of the social construct and over 400 years of being enslaved and stripped away of your culture, your religion, your way of life, your name, and, and completely been given a foreign way of worshiping a God other than that, which many of us prior to slavery was practicing Islam, you know, having that beaten out of you, having family stripped away from them, you know, loved ones killed, hung, boycotted, segregated, Jim Crowism, you name it. You know, over 400 plus something years, almost 500 years of that kind of torture, oppression, tyranny has left a stain on our sights. You know, so a few of us that we see that become great athletes, lawyers, teachers, whatever, that come out of that are exception to the to the many. You know, it's exception to, to, to the many of us that that's still in that struggle for liberation, for new consciousness and rehabilitation back into our true culture, our true religion. And, and for the most part, for many of us, that's Islam. I think um, the generation of today is not afraid. It's very fearless and has accent is challenging their parents and some of their maybe uh, some things that became Norman households and community settings and getting out there for themselves and seeing and doing research with more access to information and realizing some of what you may have been taught and have been the best of, uh, or completely true. And it's another side of this equation and the story. And I think the generation of the today, the millenniums and so forth are eager to be a part of the change. And I think we've seen yeah. it through, you know, the presidential elections, Congress, the, the recent elections, the protests, the crowds um, beginning to differ and, and become more diverse with the protests, not being afraid to get on the front lines with uh, African-Americans 
who are being um, exterminated in, in, in this homegrown terrorism that takes place through police brutality over mass incarceration, um, you name it. So, yeah, I think it's I think I think the generation of the day is going to be the generation that pushed a great change that this past generations wasn't able to necessarily achieve. But that's not taken away from our civil rights era and some of the great movements that many, if not all groups and ethnic groups benefit from today. But I think we also have lost our way. And I think we have allowed the enemy of us all who kind of pin us together and look at each other and and, and fight for you know meaningless things and be distracted by the real enemy and focus all our attention on defeating such injustice in an organized and, 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 and intelligent way. SubhanAllah, Brother Leon, you've really highlighted that there's a, a serious issue uh, in the United States. So if you were to advise all Muslim American communities on proactive steps they can take to help combat this issue, like what, what is something that you would advise them to do? Like your musters all over the country. Get involved. If you're not in a, a social group or part of an organization that deals with social issues, get involved or create one with your Muslim brothers and sisters. But sometimes, you know, that's a process and we always don't have to try to reinvent the wheel. We can just join, join those organizations that may be established that's doing it and support it, become advocates of it, support the groups with programming, uh, help fundraise, help get funding to keep the programs going because you have to be, if you're serious about social change that many of us want to see, it has to be from a more of an independent lens and you can't depend on other groups that's not in tune or really support your core principles and mission for that type of liberation and, and, and freedom from such oppression to finance or to be the biggest supporter of that, that cause and not expect them to want to influence it in a way that it deters you from the end game of ultimately being liberated from such injustice. So we have to be the change that we want to see. We have to come together from the suburbs to the urban community or hoods to the rural areas. We all go through a type of impression and deal with poverty and other issues on many different levels. The time and the generation now, though, I believe has to be courageous enough to reach across the aisle and not be so stagnated or scared. So when you identify legitimate individuals and organizations that's doing certain work to step into um, those environments, learn about those environments, do your research, study. Don't be afraid to study the things that the college students or the college professor, excuse me, or teachers is giving you is books and things that you don't get in the college dorms and, and school um, setting that you need to read that needs to be sought out. And don't be so quick to judge and, and, and think that one side is always better than the other Republican Democrat, uh, you know, this, that, you know, don't get caught up in what's already structured for you to fail at, that you can never win at, which is what we've been dealing with with Westernizism. When you, forget completely your Islam or your history or your culture or being willing to acknowledge and speak truth to power in the proper time and setting according to your courage level and in your own environment against certain injustices or things that you know that, that to be falsehood. Because so long as individuals can, can speak a lie, people will begin to believe it. And when you recognize that, especially if you Muslim, you have to stand on what the Quran, Kareem, and the Sunnah of Prophet Muhammad were, you know, what he has laid down to us when it comes to speaking truth to power and then fighting against injustice and helping our brothers and sisters who are in need, who may be less um, privileged or fortunate enough to be in a situation to help themselves on any level. You know what I'm saying? So we have to really put our deen into practice in an organized way. And you don't have to be alone in doing that but in an organized way and, and standing up and just giving truth to falsehood and speaking truth to power. I mean, that's what you do. That's power. You empower people to speak truth by informing them with right information and then organizing to at the right time to speak that truth into existence and let that truth fight your falsehood and, and combat those injustices.
I think um, it was Malcolm X as well. He said uh, the Republicans, they might be like wolves, but the Democrats, they're like, you know, foxes. They still oppress you, but in a more cunning, you know, in a cunning way. Absolutely. I mean, <laughs> that's a good analogy. And one of my heroes, you know, look at how they made Trump this big villain. You know, he, he has his issues, but everything he did and was saying, as is a duplicate is the same playbook that the previous president and the current president elect will do, you know, it's scripted and they have a set of guidelines and rules that they're going to follow. My issue is when we as citizens, especially Muslims who are supposed to be independent thinkers and allow Allah to guide their hearts and minds to not just be programmed into following the ways of, or a movement or a, a hot topic or something really do your research. But, you know, saying people are thugs and things like that. Obama said the same exact thing when the the police brutality erupted in St. Louis and Baltimore. You're thugs, and he just said it more nicer, and you know things like that. So people got to pay attention and don't forget and study history because history is your guide to what's going on now. You know, he who doesn't study it will allow it to repeat itself, and history definitely does that. But he who is a study who studies history will be one to be able to navigate the president and build on a better future because of it. SubhanAllah, Brother Leon, this has really been, uh, I think I can speak for all of us when I say this, this has really been uh, an enlightening conversation on a subject which isn't unfortunately much talked about uh, in the Muslim community. And we pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala blesses you with success in your endeavors. And we hope that this episode is a benefit uh, to all those that listen to it. And uh, on that note, I think we will uh, wrap things up. So, Brother Leon, thank you uh, for joining us today on the Caravan Sarai. And we hope we can have you on again in the future, inshallah. Inshallah. Thank you, brothers, for just inviting me and allowing me to share some of my story and just build with you, brothers, man. You know, I, I, I might, I'm chopping this, this hadith up, but it was a hadith my Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu had mentioned, you know, when one or two or more brothers come together and they remember the name, you should remember the name of Allah. So it's just been enlightening to be around you brothers, just mention the name of Allah, his messenger, and just have such an awesome conversation and be able to share my story. So I want to thank you brothers and continue to encourage you to do the great work that you're doing and starting out to do through your podcast, as well as your other endeavors. Just like a look at Brother Leon. Brother Leon, if someone wants to find out more about a major institute, uh, where can they go? Do you guys have a website? Yeah, absolutely. So our website is www.madeinstitute.org. That's the madeinstitute.org. Or they can reach us at 810-835-8304. That is a direct business line that they can reach us at um, during any time of the weekday between uh, 9 a.m. to 5. You know, and um, you can leave comments on the website, um, follow us on social media. Um, and things like that. Jazakallah khair. And we'll be sure to add those links um, under the podcast as well. Yep. And uh, to our audience members, uh, once again, uh, thanks for stopping by the Caravan Sarai. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. If you enjoyed your stay at the Caravan Sarai, be sure to subscribe so you will be notified when a new episode is posted. Also, don't forget to rate and review the podcast and share it with your friends. We hope you enjoyed your stay with us and learned something new. Once again, thanks for stopping by the Caravan Sarai.